Well, you guys ready for the word this morning? Well, praise God. Well, let's go ahead and uh, bow our head as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, you are so faithful. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word, that we can know what your will is for our life, what you want for us, that we can, uh, that you still speak to us through it today. And this morning as we come to it, Father, I pray that our hearts are ready uh, to receive what you have for us, that our eyes are open, our ears are open, and Lord, that we would grow this morning, that we would mature in our faith and in our love for you and for one another, and we just thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, hallelujah. We're going to go ahead and uh, we're almost done with the book of First John, we have this week, and uh, Pastor Joseph is going to minister next week uh, on the last uh, portion of chapter 5. And uh, how you guys been enjoying it so far? You've been getting some good stuff out of it? Hallelujah, I'm glad. As I've said before, I really like going verse by verse because you don't get to skip the, uh, the hard stuff, and we have to talk about it all. And uh, even when sometimes that stuff's hard to hear. I was just talking to, to Jan the other day as we're going through this, and, and typically when we read John's writings, you know, he's very focused on love. I'm like, man, he talks about love. That's the feel-good stuff. But as we've really been going through this and breaking it down, um, a lot of what John has been talking about, even though it's all based on love, has been a, a very big challenge to each and every one of us. He's, he's, he's kind of a no-nonsense guy, and it's, it's, there's, there's no gray area. He says, you either love God and love his children, or you're probably not a Christian. And he's very clear on that. And I, I never realized that before until I was really studying it hard this time, that, that, that this isn't a, maybe as feel-goody of, of a chapter as you might have thought, but this has been a challenging, uh, challenging study as we look at his word and what he's challenging us to do. And today, John, as we go into uh, chapter 5, we're going to go through the first 12 verses, um, he's going to kind of talk about two topics in this section here. And the first is, is going to be talking about faith and really how faith is interconnected with love. Because the truth is, and what he's going to say today, is to have real faith, you have to love God and you have to love others. And the two are actually interconnected with one another. Because if you don't love God and love others, you probably don't have real faith. And then it says to have real love for God, you have to do one other thing too, and that is keep his commandments. And this is something we actually all know, and even Jesus said it. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? They were supposed to keep the commandments of God. You know, so many people treat Christianity as kind of a, uh, a list of things they have to do. You know, if I just pray this much and read my Bible this much, check if I just come to church at least a couple times a month and check that I'm in God's good graces, but the reality is, is that, that Christianity is not about a system of rules and regulations and, and um, traditions that we must follow, but the, it's, it's about a relationship with God, and not only is He uh, our, 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 our Savior, not only is Jesus our Savior, not only does God love you, not only can we call Him friend, but He's also our Lord, and we're supposed to obey His commandments. And John's going to deal with that today. He's going to say, you know what? If you have real love for God, you'll actually obey his commandments. And John's always very clear about this stuff because the inverse is true. If you don't obey his commandments, then do you really love God? And then the second that he's going to deal with today is this idea of uh, testimony and witness for the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Basically, we're going to talk about that there is, there is plenty of of witness out there for the truth of who Jesus is and, and what he did. 
and that he's our savior. And the reality is, is that witness that we're going to talk about today, it's, it's God's witness. It's God telling us these things are true. God testifies of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And as a result, if we reject the gospel, if we reject Jesus Christ, we're actually calling God a liar. And the truth is, is that anytime we read the word of God and we see his promises, we see what he says, anytime that we reject those things, the reality is, is, is that we're, we're saying we don't believe you, God. We don't believe what you have to say. We don't believe that you can be trusted. We're essentially calling God a liar when we do these things. You know, and that kind of stuff's hard to hear. You know, the, tr the truth is, lack of faith is a demonstration that you don't believe what God said. But the good news is, when we do believe, when we do trust God, and we believe the witness of God, then we can know that we have eternal life. Amen? Isn't that good news? We can know. We don't have to be concerned or wonder. We don't have to think, man, are my scales tipped high enough? Did I do enough good that when I stand before God, the balance is going to be tipped? It has to, uh, standing right before God has nothing to do with that, but solely trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and get started in verse 1. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So these first five verses or so in uh, chapter five, we're going to deal with this idea of, of faith and love and how those two things are interconnected. And the first thing that John says is that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And sometimes when we look at this stuff, we, we, we forget what John is actually trying to say. You know, that simply he's saying, everyone who believes that Jesus the Christ has been born of God, that's a simple statement and we can, we can understand that, we can know that. But what does he mean by everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ? What does actually does that mean? Because the truth is, is that, that it's, it's more than just saying it. There's more to it. That believing that Jesus is the Christ is, is, is one. He just said in verse, uh, chapter 4, in verse 2, that believing in Jesus means believing that he's come in the flesh. Believing that, that, that God came down as a man. 1 John 4.2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So that's one of the things, to be born of God, to be from God, is to, to believe that he has come in the flesh. It also means believing that Jesus is a Christ, is believing that, that he is God's son and he is the savior of the world. 1 John 4, 14 through 15 says, and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You know, it's funny, as we read through the book of John, if you take any one of these statements, these single statements that he says, you know, anyone that does this abides in God and God in him, or anybody who does this is a child of God, or anybody that does this has been born of God, you're like, oh, if I just do that one thing. But the reality is, is that all these things add up together to be those one things. You know, you can't have one without the other. And the other thing that we have to understand when he's talking about this, we talked about you know, believing in God and, and, and believing that he came in the flesh. 
believing that he's the, the son and that he's the savior of the world, all these things add up to, to this one statement who believes in the Christ. That we also have to understand that it's not just an intellectual belief. This isn't an academic thing that we're trying to accomplish. Matter of fact, that, uh, and James said something very similar in James 2.19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. You know, believing something is not the same thing as putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the Christ, but they're not going to heaven. Because it's also putting your faith and trust in Him as your Savior. It's not just believing that He is, but it's also believing that He is your Savior, that He came to save the world. And John has mentioned over and over and over again, I don't know if you've noticed how many times he's mentioned that, that basically how you, the evidence of, of one being born of God, the evidence of one being born again, the evidence of one being a child of God is how you behave. It's how you live your life. It's how you love. All these things give evidence that you have been born of God. And it's interesting to me that so many people live their lives saying one thing, but their life shows something completely different. And John has been dealing with this so succinctly and over and over and over. That's why I said that you know, he's always talking about love and all this, this good stuff, but the reality is, is he's putting conditions on it over and over and over again. There should be evidence. And that's where we get to here, right? It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. But if you've been born of God, if you love the Father, then there's evidence of that. In this case, he begins speaking of that everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. You see, being born again, being born of God, results in changed behavior. And what it should do is then begin to cause you to love those who have been born again. Or... or as you said earlier, love your brothers. And here's the thing. Faith and love are inseparable. They're intrinsically linked. When you have faith in the Father, it's going to change who you are and it's going to change and cause you to love. Not only love the Father, but it causes you to love one another. Because faith results in love. It always does. And lack of faith results in a lack of of love and a lack of love indicates a lack of faith the reality is is that every true believer is a child of god and that means that every true believer has god as their father isn't that good news we've been grafted into the body of christ we've been grafted in to the family of god he is our father we are his children but it's also true that every true believer will not only love god but they will also love God's children. That means that they're going to love one another. And we're going to see that this isn't just a, a good idea. This is a commandment that we love one another. And it's how all that stuff is intrinsically linked together. You know, loving one another is not how we prove that, we, that we're saved. That's not how we get saved. But the result is, is that once you're saved, once you're changed, the evidence of that is how you, you live and how you treat one another. Faith and how you live are linked together. Faith and how you love are linked together. And not having one 
demonstrates that you don't have the other. And he continues on talking about this in verse 2 and 3. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Like he said in this last verse, that everyone who loves God also loves God's children. So he says, well, how can you know that you're loving God's children? And he says, you know you're loving God's children by loving God and keeping his commandments. The truth is, is that when you keep his commandments, this is how we show that we're loving God. That's one of the things that, that by, by, you're basically proving, you're demonstrating your love for God by actually listening to what he says and doing what he says. So many people just want to have all the gifts, the blessing, the goodness of God, but without doing anything on, on their part. So many times people treat God as a, uh, a holy slot machine. They figure they can just pull the, letter, the lever and something comes out. Or maybe even a better example would be a, a holy ATM. Figure they can just go in and punch some buttons in and, and God's going to give, 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 but there's... The, the reality is, is that, that when we're connected to God in that way, something in us changes and there's demonstration of that. God is not just about, about getting, 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 but there's more to it than that. It's a relationship. And how we live our lives is, is a demonstration of what has been accomplished inside of us. So he says, by loving God uh, and keeping His commandments, we can know that we love the children of God. And that seems kind of a weird statement because wouldn't you know that you love the children of God by loving the children of God? But he says we can know that we love the children of God by keeping his commandments because basically it's this. John is saying that the, the, the love for others is grounded in the love for God. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him you see love is our our evidence of us abiding in god and god abiding in us and like we said when we love god we keep his commandments that's the natural result it's not out of fear it's not out of 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 hoping to get something but the reality is, is when we we see a god who loves us so much the natural response is to want to be pleasing to him because he's given so much to us just like your children want to be pleasing to you just like when you were growing up, you wanted to be pleasing to your parents. So love is evidence of God in us and us in Him. And when we love God, like I said, we keep His commands. And then this also involves having love for others. Because you're going to realize that loving others is actually one of the commandments of God. So that's, how, that, that's what he means here. How can we know that we love the children of God? It's because when we love God and obey His commandments. Which commandments do we obey? Loving His children. In 1 John 3.11, it says, this is the message that we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is a commandment of God. So we begin to see that the love of God and actually the love for others are interrelated. One results in the other. And the truth is, is that the love for God is the basis for every other manifestation of love in our lives. At least in every other manifestation of real love. We talked about last week about the difference between, between the love that you see on earth or, or, or godly love. 
And any kind of that love, that God-like love, the love that, that forgives, the love that is there always, that has no conditions, the reason we can even love like that is because God first loved us. If you want more details on that, I believe that was last week we talked about that. Go back and listen to that one. But that's the thing, is that the love that we have for God is the basis of the love that we show to everyone else. And we do that by keeping His commandments. Love for God is shown by obeying His commandments. That's what He says, for this is the love of God. What is the love of God? We keep His commandments. And then it says His commandments are not burdensome. Another way to put this would be to say that God's commandments are not oppressive. You know, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes it can be hard to love people. Anybody ever experienced some difficulty loving people in your life? Sometimes it's hard. You see, the commandments of God sometimes aren't easy from a humanly perspective, from a fleshly perspective. Because sometimes it can be hard to love people. Especially because it seems like some people go out of their way to be unlovable. They make it difficult. They make it hard. But the reality is, is that even people that are like that, it's better for us to love them. You want to know why? Because it keeps bitterness and jealousy and hate and anger out of our hearts. And that's why you actually need God's help. You need God's love inside you to overcome some of that. Some, let's be real, some people are hard to love. But the thing is, is that we want to keep that bitterness, the jealousy, the hatred, all of that stuff out of our hearts because that is in contrast to our new nature as Christians, as new believers. The truth is, is that when that stuff is inside of you, it actually harms you, it hurts you. In the beginning, it hurts your attitude, it hurts your outlook on life, it begins to, to chip away at your joy. And when that's taken to its full fruition long term, it actually can begin to impact your health. And this isn't something that, 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 that is just from the Bible and it's not something we see out there. I don't know if you ever noticed, but there's a lot of things that God talks about that He tries to steer us away from in the Bible or He talks about in the Bible that is actually goes ahead and gets proven by science. It gets, goes ahead and, and, and science gives evidence to these things. And we do know that people that are always angry, that are always, that are always bitter, it actually impacts their life. It impacts how their skin ages. It impacts how they see things. And oftentimes, it impacts their, their health. They get sick more often. Because these things are not good for you. So God gives us the ability to love, even in those cases, because then we're not going against the flow. We're not going against the grain of who we are, our new nature in Jesus Christ. The truth is, is that loving people, even people that are hard to love, is freeing in comparison to the alternative. That's why Jesus said this in a Matthew, Matthew 11, 28-30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. The world is convinced that keeping God's commandments is burdensome. 
I know this because I've talked to so many people that, that when, I, when I begin to tell them about Jesus, the only thing they can think of is all the stuff that they're going to have to give up. They somehow have been convinced by the world that, that giving up all these things is going to make their life worse. And the truth is, is I, I thought that before too. You know, there, were, there was plenty of sin in my life that if I'm, if I'm honest, there was, there was maybe some sadness or concern as why it took me so long to give everything to God because I didn't want to give up those things. Because somehow I thought that they were the source of my joy, that they were what made me happy. And the reality was is they were always tearing me down and bringing me down. I wasn't finding happiness and joy in any of those things, any of those sins. But the world is constantly telling you that your way is the right way. That you can essentially be your own God. And that's just a deception. They say that they're free. But the truth is, is they're enslaved. You know, one of the challenges that I like to give people that begin to tell me, they're like, I don't want to be a Christian. You have all these rules and regulations. I want to be free. Oh, you want to be free? You think you're free? Yeah, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Well, if you're so free, why don't you stop? Stop smoking if you're so free. Stop going out to the club every weekend if you're so free. But the thing is, is they can't. They think that they're free, but they're not really free. They've enslaved all the sins that they think that they're free to do. The truth is they're enslaved to them. They can't stop. They need Jesus to be set free of these things. And then they say that they're happy but their entire life consists of looking for the next thing to get their happiness fixed. There is no contentment. There is no, no lasting permanence. The Bible says that, that sin is fleeting, the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then we also see that they have no hope for the future. The truth is, is everything is about the now because they, they have no hope for the future. Their, their, best, their best bet is that when they die, it's all done. The reality is, is that they're an eternal being, whether they, they want to realize it or not. The thing is, is they've got to decide where they want to spend eternity. They have no hope for the future. So the truth is, is that keeping His commandments and living according to His will, live according to our new nature, is actually the best way to live. And it's actually not burdensome or oppressive. It's actually so much better for you, so much freer for you. I know I look back, and I, I walk downtown. I don't like going downtown Tucson at night. And the reason being is because it reminds me of all those things I thought I was free to do. It reminds me of a time in my life that I, don't, I prefer not remember. Because I wasn't free. I was oppressed and I just didn't know it. But the truth is, is that now that I've decided to follow God and live according to His commandments, they're not burdensome, they're not oppressive. They actually let me live a, live a life that is so much more fulfilling and I can be content. And not only do I find happiness, but I find joy. You guys know there's a difference between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is fleeting, right? You get an ice cream cone and you're happy. Your kid knocks it off onto the ground, you're not happy anymore. <laughs> That's a bad day. So you go back and you get another one and you're happy again. 
But then you realize if you eat it, you're going to put on six more pounds and you're not happy again. <laughs> That's happiness. But joy is independent of your circumstances. I have joy because God loves me. And he sent his son for me. And it doesn't matter if my ice cream falls on the ground. I still have that joy. Melted ice cream can't steal that away. Before I was looking for happiness. But in Jesus Christ, I found joy. And I found hope. And I found a future. And I've now come to recognize that living according to his word and according to his will is so much more better for my life. And he goes to continue on in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How many know that sometimes your old life can try to come and sneak up on you, though? You see, sometimes keeping his commandments can seem very hard, especially when you have that that who you were trying to creep up in your memory. Or you, you still are struggling with certain sins and you just haven't had a, a full revelation of the freedom that you have in Christ. And sometimes keeping His commandments can seem so difficult. Loving others, like we talked about, sometimes it's hard to love people. Or living without sin, those things that you're still struggling with. But the truth is, is that we have overcome the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This means that everyone who has been born of God is already victorious over all of those areas in your life. This is not something that we're working towards. It's something that we have right now. When you are born again, you have a new nature. Faith in Jesus changes who you are. And sometimes it's just grabbing a hold of that in our body, what has already been accomplished in our spirit. And if you ever find yourself struggling in any of these areas, whether it be loving somebody or, or, or just dealing with sin in your life, remember that you are victorious in Jesus Christ. Well, what, if I, what if I mess up, Pastor Wayne? Then get back up and remember that you're victorious. What if I mess up again? And get back up and remember that you are victorious. Stand on what the Word of God says. He says you're victorious. You keep getting back up. He says, because this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. When we put our trust in Jesus, we have been given the victory. We have overcome everything in this world that is coming against it. Because of your faith, you are victorious. Other scripture says that you are more than a conqueror. You are an overcomer. And the reason is, it's just like Paul said. He said, it's not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Sure, by yourself, we don't have the power to be victorious. We end up being enslaved. We end up being stuck. That's why the world thinks that, 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 that they're free when they're not, because they're enslaved. Without Christ, we are enslaved. But with Him, we have overcome and we are victorious. Jesus said this. This is why it says here <clears throat> that we have overcome the world in our faith. It's because Jesus said this in 16, 30, John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you, but that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world, and it's Christ in us. 
that lives, which is why we have victory. It's why we have overcome the world. And then John says something interesting. He says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This really is a rhetorical question. But the answer is supposed to be, who else could overcome the world? Who else is it that overcomes the world? This is the only option. The only one that overcomes the world is those who believe in Jesus and that he's the Son of God. There is nobody else who overcomes the world. And we know this because they're enslaved and they'll be dragged down, dragged down to an eternity without God if they stay that way. But in Jesus, they can overcome as well. Overcoming the world is only possible to those who believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that have accepted him as their personal Lord and Savior. Amen? And in the next few verses, the, the, the tone kind of changes. We just got done talking about faith and love, and now uh, John's going to begin a, a different topic that focuses around the theme of testimony and witness. So over the next few verses, all the way through verse, uh, I believe it's 15 we end up today, no, 12 we end up today, um, we're going to see the word, the Greek word martis, or a version of the Greek word martis, is used nine times in these next few verses. And this word translates to witness. And basically the point that, that he's going to be making is that we should understand that there is more than enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, and through him, all who believe in him will receive eternal life. That's kind of the point of the next few verses, is that, that there is more than enough evidence, more than enough witness or testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, and that all that believe in him will have eternal life. So in verse John 5, 6 through 8, it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Now this idea of water and blood was likely very clear to John's audience at the time. When we read it, we're going, huh? The, the truth is, is that, that even modern scholars today, there's quite a few theories of, of what this, this might mean. And I'm going to tell you the one that, that I think is the most likely, and it's the one that, that I believe is, is true, because I think there's some problems with the other ones. But, but there's, the, the truth is, is that when we read this, this idea of, of this is he who came by water and blood is not completely evident to us in a world that, that is quite different from the one that they, that they lived in when this was written. But one of the things that, that uh, uh, we, can, we can, even though we, we can recognize there are other theories, the, ones that, the one that makes the most sense is that the water is referring to the baptism of Jesus Christ. When he went and got baptized by, by John, the, the water is, is, is what this likely refers to. And then the blood refers to his death on the cross. And like I said, there are other theories. One of the other ones is that the water refers to baptism, which is kind of agreed on by most people, but then the, 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 the blood maybe would refer to uh, the Lord's Supper, which for that to make sense, it would kind of be uh, John really changing course right in the middle of his letter. Because if we think about it, what has this letter been primarily dealing with? 
It's been John refuting the Gnostic teachers that were coming in and ministering to his disciples, to his churches. These people were coming in and they were denying Jesus' humanity. There was also a, another group that were coming in, and, and this is probably who he's really correcting, is this idea that, that Jesus was born just a man. That's all he was. He was a man. He wasn't God. And he lived, and until his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, at that moment, the, this divine Christ came and settled onto Jesus and was then a part of Jesus. So at that moment, now there's this other entity that's in Jesus who is the Christ. And then right before he died, this entity left Jesus, and then it was just Jesus the man that died on the cross. This was actually being taught during this time, and, and, and John is, is refuting this teaching. That's why he's saying that, look, he didn't just come, uh, he came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and the blood. The point is, is that, that, that not only did he get baptized, but he also died on the cross. The point is that, that uh, uh, these, these witnesses for Jesus is who he says he is, the baptism, right? When, when he got baptized, this was Jesus, God in the flesh, came down and he got baptized. When this happened, this happened to one person. It wasn't the man Jesus who at this point somehow got some divine entity that, that came and rested upon him. This was one Jesus. And then the next one would be his, his death. This wasn't some other Jesus or this, the Jesus that was just the man and the divine entity left. He didn't come just by water, just by baptism, but baptism and blood. It was one Jesus who went through all of these things. And it's the birth, it is both of these events that happened that give witness to the fact that Jesus lived and he died for our sins. These two things, the water and the blood, were evidence that, that he came and he was who he says he was. Right? Because the scriptures point to all this stuff. And his baptism, I mean, that's, can you imagine being there at his baptism? When the heavens open up and, and God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit came and settled upon him like a dove. These were a witness that Jesus was who he says he was. And then ultimately when he gave his life on the cross, fulfilling so many prophetic words about him, this was also evidence that he was who he says he was. They give witness to the fact. They, they're a testimony to the fact that he lived and he died. And then finally John says, the Spirit is also the one who testifies. The Holy Spirit also testifies to the truthfulness of who Jesus was as well. Jesus told us that he was coming. The Helper was coming. In John 15, 26, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And we know that he, he does this because this is a, uh, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it says that he, he convicts the world regarding sin, not pointing out their failures, but, but pointing out that they need a Savior. They testify to Jesus and who he was. The Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus. So we have this idea of the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus, which are, are, are actually very strongly attested historical facts. There's, there's really no, no, no historian 
worth anything that doesn't believe that Jesus lived. That doesn't believe that Jesus died on the cross. Nobody's confused about whether Jesus was a real person and he did these things. Everybody agrees on that. Whether you're a Christian or not, everybody agrees on this. The question is, is who he, the, the question that people disagree on is, is he, was, is he who he says he was? But the, the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus are testified in history. And then all three of these witnesses, the water, the blood, and then the Spirit of God bear witness and testify that a single divine person who was Jesus Christ was involved in all of these events. Like I said, John's dealing with some pretty crazy teaching going on, saying that it was, that it was a man and then he was divine and then he wasn't again and then he died. John's saying, no, there was, this was one person. This was God come in the flesh who went through those things. And then he continues on in verses 9 through 10. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. Basically what John is saying now, listen, if you're willing to take the testimony of men, and that's a pretty common thing. Even we do that now, right? If we, one of the, the evidences that can be used in you in a court of law is people that come and give testimony, witness, a man coming and giving witness to what you have done. And back then, they, they accepted the, the witness or testimony of men as well. And John's saying, listen, if you're willing to take the witness and testimony of men, then surely you should be able to take the testimony and witness of God. And that's what he was saying. What he's saying here is this, this testimony of God. He's referring to the, the water, the, the blood, and the Spirit. He's saying these are the testimony of God. These are the things that prove that God was, with, uh, was, was, was uh, uh, approving of these things that happened with Jesus. These, these witnesses have God's authority and power behind them to say that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that he died for each and every one of our sins. And he says, if you're okay to take the testimony of men whom we do know lie from time to time, we do know that their memories are fallible, we do know that there can be issues with taking testimony from men because men can be bribed, men can be coerced, men can be forgetful. But if we're willing to take the testimony from men, then surely we should be able to take the testimony of God. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater And then he goes on to say, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe has made him a liar. In other words, that believing in God or believing in Jesus is the same as believing God's testimony concerning his Son. So the truth is, is that if you, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you do believe God's testimony. But if you don't, then you're calling God a liar. By believing, you have God's truth in your heart, you have his testimony in yourself. But if you don't believe, then you're saying, God, you are a liar. That's why the Bible says that every single one of us is without excuse. Because everything around us testifies to a creator, to God. And then God himself testifies that his son is our savior. By not believing, you've called him a liar. And you're going to notice there is no middle ground. There is no halfway. There is no, I'm, I'm unsure. 
If you believe, then you have the truth in you, this testimony inside of you. But if you don't, then you're calling God a liar. Because it's His testimony that we receive. And as we know, His testimony is certainly greater than any testimony that any one of us in this room would give. And this testimony we have inside of us in verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. This testimony that we have inside of ourselves is eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. When you put your trust in Him, you have eternal life instead of eternal death separated from Him. And like we talked about earlier, the truth is, is that, that accepting the testimony of God concerning His Son is, is not just academic, but it is, it is a life and death situation. Our response to His witness actually determines if we will receive eternal life or if we will not. And you might remember that in chapter 2, John was referring to people that were trying to deceive His disciples. 1 John 2, 25-26 says, And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. And I write you these things, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. See, there were so many that were denying Jesus was who He says He was, or that He was something different, or that you could get eternal life through Him. And John is trying to refute those teachings, and he's saying, no, that if you put your trust in Him, you do have eternal life. If you believe His witness, if you believe God's testimony, and you receive His Son, you have His testimony inside you, and that testimony is eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And then he finishes this section. That's where we'll close today in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. One of the greatest things about this eternal life that's been spoken of the last few verses is that we don't have to wait one day for it. It doesn't say whoever has the Son will someday be given life. It doesn't say whoever has the Son can look forward to life. It says whoever has the Son has the life. You have it right now. It's not something we look forward to. If we have Jesus, we have it now. To have Jesus is to have the fullness of life. Not something we earn. Not something we work towards. But rather we put our trust in Him. And as a result of putting our trust in Him, we give evidence that we believe His witness and we receive this free gift of eternal life. But John's very clear the alternative is also true. That if you reject the Son, then you don't have life. There is no gray area. It's just one or the other. Amen? So church... Let's make sure that we're a people who are accepting that witness, that we're grabbing hold of the Son and know that we have eternal life. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and bow our head.